Each week has been the passion of this church before it started um, with Pastor Adam and with me. We're always about the Word of God, and every week we will unfold the Word of God, and that's where we are. We're in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Let me read that. Of course, I've titled this message, Love Not the World, Part 2. We might need Part 3. I'm always sensitive that uh, I don't want to you know, labor too long at a point, but I want you to know I also realize I don't think I'll get back to 1 John. So I feel like if, now that might not be true, but I just feel like we want to get it right. I don't want to skip anything, and you have to understand the dilemma on my mind and heart. I, I was thinking it's like thinning fruit, <laughs> Today, when some of the farmers told me that they thin sometimes as much as 90% to get that ripe fruit, I don't think I have to thin 90%, but it would well be understood that I probably have to take out half of what I study so that we can fit it in the time frame. So I just don't want to miss anything. I don't want to skip over it. And I think I don't want to skip over it, not only for us, but I don't want to skip over it for your kids. And I don't want to skip over it for your grandkids. Because I really feel like we're building a legacy here in our fifth year. And we want to stand on the bedrock of Scripture. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now you remember that we stated those affirmations in 12 through 14, that your sins are forgiven, that you know God and that you've overcome the evil one. Those affirmations that John gives to us in 12 through 14 are followed by warnings that we do not ever live in duplicity with a heart that is saturated by the world. And remember as we stated there as we come to 2 15 through 17 I don't think it's hard to understand John lays down one huge commandment, do not love the world. And then he bolsters it, secondly, with two incentives that give us reason not to love the world. Now there's much to say here, and I'm pausing because there is so much to say on this subject. But I would actually tell you that Rather than me coming kind of with a shepherd's stick trying to hitch in, say, don't love the world, I don't think that's John's heart. I think John's heart is encouraging. He lays down this huge commandment, and then he tells you, secondly, the reason why. He lays down this huge commandment to not love the world, but then he gives you, you, incentives to not love the world. And I hope, and you can tell me if we've achieved that at the end, that you would say, man, Scott, I don't want to love the world. And so he's going to lay down those incentives. So let's dive in. You remember that we began last week, just touch on it, that huge command given to the believers. It's there in 15. Here's the command. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. We stated that it's a present tense imperative command. It could imply that this was an action that was ongoing. And John was saying, hey, don't love it, because some were in the process to whom he wrote to that were actually loving the world, okay? And then we talked just yet last week, what world are we not to love? We, that's very important, because you're, you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, John says there, do not love the world nor the things in the world, but Jesus said in John 3, 16, John the Apostle, for God so loved the world. And we tried to just make sense out of that, that the world, that Greek word cosmos, is spoken of in three different ways in the scripture. Remember that sometimes when that word world is used, it speaks of the creation. 
We talked about that last week. Remember at the end of the creation in Genesis 1.31, God said that it was all very good. In fact, in Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling the glory of God. So sometimes the world is used to speak of the creation that he made. But secondly, sometimes that word cosmos is used to speak of the human race. All of the human race. So that when it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, there John's not talking about the creation. He didn't love the creation in which he made, though he did say it was very good. Their world spoke of the human race. But thirdly, we said that that word there, do not love the world, spoke, and here in 1 John, of the evil system that is opposed to God, that is opposed to Christ. So in the first aspect of the world, we are to love the world, okay? In the sense that he created. In the second aspect, we are there to love the world and the people in it. We're to evangelize the world because God indeed loved it. But in this third meaning, and the way that John used it, we are exhorted to not love the world. To not love the world, to not love the evil system, if, if you will. To not love the world in rebellion and opposition to God. We said that it is anti-God. In fact, John will say in the next passage, it is anti-Christ. It is the world, the cosmos in that sense, in total opposition to God. And it is an evil system. In fact, look over at 1 John 3, 13. He used it in that way there, where he said, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world, what? Hates you. Now, he's not talking about the world of creation. He's not necessarily talking about the human race. He's talking about the world system there. And maybe you've experienced that this week with difficulty with family and friends who don't understand your commitment. Listen, I would say to you, do not be surprised because you're not of this world. In fact, look over at 1 John 5, 19 in that classic description of the world. He says, we know in 5, 19 that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. There's that system that is against God. In fact, look back at chapter 4 of 1 John and 4, 5. They are from the world, unbelievers. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. But in verse 6, we are from God. And so it's the world system. And in this sense, Satan, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is the God of this, what, world. Do you understand how he means that now? God made the world in creation. God loves the world, that, that human, the humans that he created. But in this sense, in the cosmos, in that third sense, Satan is the God of this world. And the world is an evil system that is under divine judgment and the control of Satan is the one that is not to be loved. John will tell us in his gospel in 17.6 that we were chosen, he said, out of the world, out of the world system. And as such, if you're a believer, you no longer belong to it. So it's fair to say that we live in a tension. We are to be separate from the world, but we still live in the world, right? But we're not to love the world. We can't escape from the world. We are to remain in the world. Now the question that remains this morning is this. Why are we commanded to not love the world? And as I said there, he gives these two incentives why we are commanded to not love the world. And we left off at that first one. Here's the first uh, incentive is this, that the world is incompatible with our love for God. The world is incompatible with our love for God. Look at the text and let's pick it up this morning in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father 
is not in him. In other words, if you love the world, and again, it's in the present tense, describing someone who continually makes the world the object of his or her love, then very clearly, look again, the love of the Father is not in him. What John says to us is that these two loves are incompatible. You can't love the world and love the Father. Or to say it another way, you can't love the Father and at the same time love the world. Either you love God and you love the Father or you love the world system. And so here he says, listen, here's this huge command. The first incentive is you can't love the world because it's incompatible with your love for God. Remember, Jesus said, and you know it by heart, that no one can serve two, what? Masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. So again, John's talking in these contrasts, right? It's either God or Satan. It's either truth or a lie. It's either fellowship or you're not in fellowship in here. You either love the Father or you love the world. And in that sense, Paul wrote about his friend Demas having loved this present world. He deserted me. Now, I ask you this question because it begs itself here. What is worldliness though? I mean, what is worldliness comprised of? Does John describe what this system looks like? And the answer is, yes, he does. He names here three ways that the world operates. Three ways that the world system comes at us and why it's incompatible with the Father. Look at the text in verse 16. He said, for all that is in the world, and then here's the three descriptions of the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, And the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Let's talk about those. And again, as always, my desire is not to, I guess, speak on top of the text. I just want the text to speak. I know that's what you want. So let's dive into the scripture and find out what the word of God says. He said, for all that is in the world, and here's the first phrase, Here's the first way that the world operates. It says there in verse 16, and I'm in the ESV, the desires of the flesh. Okay, stop there for a second. The desires of the flesh. The New American Standard calls it the lust of the flesh. You say, what is that? Well, look again there in 16. It speaks of the desires. There that word desires is simply the Greek term epithumia is what the word means. You say, what does that word mean? Well, it's translated here in our English. It speaks of a desire. It speaks of a craving, okay? Now, I'd ask you the question, is a desire always wrong? Is a craving always wrong? And I would say, no. No, it's not. But This is not always a wrong desire. In fact, I would tell you, verse 15 or 16, where it speaks of the desires of the flesh, that that word alone, okay, is actually a morally neutral word. You say, well, how so, Scott? Well, 1 Timothy 3, 1, it says, if any man, you know that one, aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work, that he, you know what it says, desires to do. If anybody's in our flock, if any man, you know, aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. You actually could say that he craves to do. That we might even use it in a positive sense, that he lusts to do, okay? Jesus actually used this word, epithumia. You say he did? Yeah. Luke twenty two fifteen, when Jesus said before his death, he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. 
There you go. Not all desires are wrong. i just being honest with you. Not all cravings are wrong. It's not wrong for a man to desire the office, the work. Jesus said, I've desired to eat this Passover with you. In fact, you well know this one in Philippians 1.23 when Paul was speaking and he said, my desire is to depart and be with who? Christ. Is anything wrong with that? Anything wrong with what Phil said today? That I want to be with the Lord? Isn't that what Paul said? I desire, I epithumia. He said, I, epi, you know, I desire to depart and be with Christ. So watch this. Some desires are holy. Some desires are profitable. But predominantly in the New Testament, when you have that word epithumia, it is a desire for sin. You say, well, Scott, how do you know the difference? Well, just like in anything, you study the passage, you study the context, and the context determines the meaning. You would understand when we're talking about here the desires, verse 16, of the flesh, John is speaking in a context towards the world system that is evil. So what is this then? I'm just talking with you in verse 16. What is the desires of the flesh. It is a craving gone wrong. Okay? That's the best way to say it. It is a desire for anything outside of God's law. Let me see if I can, I can help you. Do you remember when James was talking about sin and he was trying to say, don't blame God, don't blame the society. And he said, each of us are carried away and enticed by our own, what? Lust. Lust. We're, we're kind of like a fish. Okay, I was fishing, or my kids were at Lake Powell, and they were catching some huge catfish. And sometimes you would use a lure, would you not, when you fish, and you, a fish is carried away, it's enticed, and, and here James uses that, we're carried away and enticed by our own lust but it's a sinful lust in this context now look again at verse 15 okay he says there 16 for all that is in the world he speaks of that desire in this context it's a sinful desire he calls it a desire of the flesh okay now flesh can simply mean huh, I, you always have to explain what this means or will not understand it it can simply mean the substance of what's on our bones. In fact, flesh too can be amoral in the scripture. After all, Jesus came in the what? The flesh. So sometimes, it's again, it's a neutral word. We know that in John 1.14, the word became what? Flesh. So it's not necessarily sinful, but Flesh, though, like that word desire, can also be the source of sinful desires. And the flesh can speak of the principle of sin that still lives within us, as it's used here in 1 John. And in this context, flesh doesn't mean the body. It actually just refers to unsaved man, if you will, that blinds him to the truth of the Scripture. It's used in that sense in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now, as a believer, we've been given a new nature. Of course, we were born by the Spirit, but at the same time, we battle what we can call the unredeemed flesh that still resides in us. In fact, James used it, as I mentioned, that we're tempted and carried away by our own lust. You ever just, what is that stuff? Just to be honest with you, what is that? Do you ever wonder why you can sin? I mean, where, where does that stuff come from? I mean, have you ever wondered? I mean, all the time we talk about a new creation, and we should. All the time we talk about a new nature, and we should. But if we do it to the point where we no longer recognize our sin, like, for instance, where does lust come from? It comes, Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, from what? From within, out of the heart of men. You say, well, Pastor, what is that stuff? It's lust. Say, where does it come from? It still resides in you. 
and it operates in the sphere of the flesh. And so we have to battle against sin. And so as John talks about here, he says, you can't love the world. He said, because all that is in the world isn't from God. And what's in the world is an unabandoned recklessness to feed, to live on the desires of the flesh. We're in the process of battling, but the world is not. That's why when Paul refers to the flesh, he said this in Romans 7, 18. He says, in the flesh, there is no good thing. Because it's in our flesh that lust is, if you will, is operating. And a believer, according to Paul in Philippians 3.13, is to put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul said in Romans 13.14, to make no provision for the flesh. In fact, let me show you this. Look over in Galatians just for a moment. Look, and I'm just trying to describe this for us. In Galatians chapter 5, in verse 16, you know this passage well. But Paul there, where he's exhorting us to walk by the Spirit, says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, here it is, the epithumia, the desires of the what? The flesh. For, verse 17, the desires, the epithumia of the flesh, are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You say, well, Scott, what are then? What's the flesh? What's the sinful desires of the flesh? Paul describes them. Look here in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh, here's what the world lives on. He says they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these I as I, for, as I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, he says, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so there are the deeds of the flesh. And if you're a believer, you see the huge command. And the incentive is, is those things in the world and in our flesh, we don't want to live in them because they're not compatible with the Father. That's why Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. Peter said in 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and strangers to abstain, he said, from the desires of the flesh or the fleshly passions which wage war against your soul. So here the flesh is a description of our fallen nature that is hostile towards God and opposed to God. It is a sinful desire to be used for illegitimate ends. And rather than controlling the desire, here the desire controls us and it is the source of our temptation from within. Barclay, the commentator, said this, it is to live, and he's talking about the sinful desires, it is to live a life dominated by the senses. It is to be gluttonous, he said, in food, slavish in pleasure, lustful and lax in morals, selfish in the use of possessions, regardless of all spiritual values, extravagant in the gratification of worldly, earthly, and material desires. End of quotes. So here he says for us, for all that is in the world, go back now to 1 John. All that is in the world, in the first instance he says, the desires here 
of the flesh, he says, and he'll end it there in 16, are not from the Father, but from the world. But we don't want to live that way. But he doesn't just talk here in worldliness of the desires of the flesh. He lists, lists a second category. Look at it in verse 16. He calls it the desires of the eyes. Or I could call it the lust of the eyes. He's saying this comes from the world. And here, if you zeroed in on one truth, what is the lust of the eyes? It's covetousness. I mean, the eyes are often the source of our desire. There's a desire within. There's a lust within. They see, if you will, through the eyes. And sin is often aroused by what one sees, such as pornography, right? Jesus said, you remember what he said there? Whoever, what does he say? Looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his, what? Heart. It could just be a look. That, and you say, where does that come from? It comes from within. What is that from within? It's a desire. It's not a desire to please the Lord, but it's a desire, if you will, to gratify the flesh. And oftentimes, these sinful desires make their way out through the eyes. Now, here in this second description of sin, the focus is not so much on the assault from within, but from without, through the eyes. It is a sinful desire through what is seen. So we might put it this way, that the inward nature of lust is now stimulated by what is observed and what is seen. Hebert made this comment. He said, the reference is not merely, though, to physical sight. He said, but it includes, he said, intellectual visualization. He said, some things an individual observes readily stimulates the craving to possess. But then he went on to say, other things he may desire to feast his eyes on without personally possessing. And so here when John talks about the world, he's talking about the sinful desires of our lust, the sinful desires of the eyes. And the lust of the eyes is a sinful desire to possess things. It points to covetousness. It may also speak of the sinful desire to see or even observe wickedness for the sake of sinful pleasure simply because one is curious. Now all this stuff, John says, is incompatible with our love for God. You say, well, pastor, I'm battling that. You should. Because people in the world don't battle that, right? People in the world promote that. In fact, the world system, you say, what is the system? It's this. It feeds on the desires of the flesh. The world system feeds on the desires of the eyes. In fact, every aspect of marketing is to be appealing to you. It seeks to gratify the flesh, and then it often comes in through the eye gates. Now, I can take you to biblical examples of this. You say, well, where are they, Scott, in the Scripture? Well, just go back to the book of Genesis. You don't have to turn there. When Eve saw that the fruit was what? Pleasing to her what? Eye. She saw that the fruit in the NASB said was a delight to the eyes. Interesting. There it was. It's a sinful desire, but it makes its way to the eyes. I'm thinking of Lot's wife. Do you remember when God was raining down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? What did his wife do? She looked where? Behind. But she looked. She looked. Her look was an expression of her heart and she turned into a pillar of what? Salt. Now you say, how do they know? Because I'm assuming she's running in the front and as she looked, she, you know, she just turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back. Do you remember, certainly you do, when they were under ban to not take anything inside the city of Jericho, Right? Just remember, they walked around, they marched around, they blew the trumpets, and the walls, what? Fell down. And there was a man in the midst of the commotion, in the midst of the rubble, in the midst of, I'm sure, the debris that came down. His name was Achan. 
And as Achan went into one of the homes, it said that he saw the shining mantle that was under the ban. And it said very clearly that he coveted it and he took it. But I always think it's fascinating that he saw it with his eyes. This is how the world works. All of this is incompatible with the Father. But here he's speaking of the lust of the eyes. Maybe the, to me, the, the, the most heinous one, one of them, was Samson. I mean, the great, mighty man of God was ruled by his eyes. Do you remember what he told his mom and dad? And, and I'll probably say it like he did it. She looks good to me. Get her for me. Didn't matter if she wasn't an Israelite. She was a what? A Philistine, but she looks good to me. You parents can put that on your refrigerator. Make sure your son is wanting something other than the physical attraction, right? But you know, Samson, I mean, go, I forgot where the exact, she looks good to me. I mean, what, I mean, all that mattered is how she looked. Did it matter if she loved God? Did it matter if she loved the nation of Israel and Yahweh? All he knew is that she looked good to me. He was totally consumed by that. Of course, if it's not Samson, it's King David, who at the time when he should have been out to battle is on the balcony of his palace and he looks down and sees who? Bathsheba. And the text says she was beautiful. But you see, these desires can sometimes give way in the world to the lust of the eyes. In fact, I was reading even this week of Potiphar's wife. It said that she cast her eyes on Joseph, okay? And of course, Joseph, it said, was very, very handsome. And after she cast her eyes on Joseph, she said, lie with me. And so listen, beloved, the lust of the eyes is an entry point for a host of sins. And no wonder, Job said, that I have made a covenant with my what? My eyes. Because what the world's going to do, it's going to seduce you. And it's going to build, it's going to work off your lust. And you sometimes wonder, where does that come from? Well, listen, don't blame it on God. Don't blame it on the devil. Don't blame it on the society. A lot of people blame their sin on everybody else but themselves. Each one of you are tempted and carried away and enticed by his own what? Lust. I remember when I grew up, there was an actor, an African-American actor. You remember that guy? By the name of Flip Wilson. And he said, the devil made me what? Dude, the devil doesn't make you do anything. So where does that stuff come from? From within. You say, well, Scott, where does that come? I had a guy call me this week. Not here. Okay. I said, well, you're in trouble with your wife. What's up? He, he called me. He wants me to meet with him. Said he was on Facebook. And he befriended an old girlfriend. I said, oh, that's a no-no, dude. What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I just was wondering. That's wrong. So, well, why would he befriend her? That, maybe the motive's more important. You say, where does that stuff come from? From within. Say, I don't, well, Scott, why do I have an attraction? It's lust. And listen, you got to defeat it. But John's just saying, listen, here, here's the huge commandment. Do not love the world. Here's the incentive is it's incompatible with the love of the Father. And he's just saying this has nothing to do with our life and with our God. So he says not only the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, but there's a third one. Look in 1 John. Here's how the world operates. Here's the matrix of the world. He calls it the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. And then this one, the pride in possessions. Here's how the world works. Sinful desires are often stimulated by what the eyes see, and then it can often be expressed in an outward boasting. One author called this the trinity of evil. Now, you say, what is here the pride in possessions? Look over at 1 John 3.17. There, it says, if anyone has the world's goods... And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? There in 3.17, it describes the pride of material possessions. I might note this, that the first two descriptions of the world, the flesh and the eyes, may be sins that can be committed alone. 
But the third sin here requires an audience, okay? It, it's pride in possessions. The, the pride in possessions, or the NASB says the pride of life, is an attitude of boastfulness because of what one has. We sometimes might use that phrase, he is a show-off. It's the ideal of to show off one's abilities or to show off one's achievements or to show off one's possessions. Probably no better depicted than the MTV show called Cribs. You ever seen that? I've watched it a few times. The homes of the professional athletes enter in and, yeah, this is my theater. And they go into all their stuff, showing all the world, all that they had. But it doesn't just have to be pride in your stuff. It could be pride of your birth. It could be pride of your family. It could be pride in your business. It could be pride in your heritage. It could be pride in your social status. It could be pride in the people that you know. You begin to feel superior to others. In fact, the proud person in Romans 1.30 is described as a braggart. It could be revealed in the school that you went to, to the university that you belong to, to the church that you are a member at. I mean, this stuff is just all around us, okay? Pride is the desire, watch this, to exalt one's own accomplishments and manipulate the scenario so that we look good in the estimation of others so that they think highly of us. This is how the world operates. And what John is saying is this is incompatible with your love for God. It's not that he's trying to beat you up. He's trying to give you an incentive. This isn't the God that you worship. And you're battling these kind of things in a good way. You're in a fight. Barclay said of pride, he said the real terror of pride, he said, is that it is a thing of the heart. It certainly, Barclay said, means haughtiness. But the person who suffers from it might well appear to be walking in downcast humility while all at the same time was in their heart a vast contempt for all of his fellow men. The pride shuts itself off from God for three reasons. He said it does not know its own need. It walks in proud self-sufficiency. He said secondly, it cherishes its own independence. And thirdly, it does not recognize its own sin. And a proud person cannot receive help because it doesn't know that it needs help. Therefore, it cannot ask. It loves not God, but itself. Now, you and I would say not all boasting is wrong, right? Not all boasting is wrong. You say, well, like what, Scott? Well, Paul said, if I must boast, he said, I will boast about what pertains to my what? My weaknesses. That's not wrong. Jeremiah said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and what? And he knows me. That's okay to boast. But here you're talking about the pride of boasting as though you've accomplished everything yourself. I mean, the greatest maybe form of pride in the Old Testament was one of the greatest Babylonian kings. Remember his name? His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And one day, he's out on his palace roof. And you remember that below stretched all of Babylon, Babylonians, or Babylon's busy canals. And it was said that off those canals in the water, the sun would strike it. And then it would show the glistening tiled walls of the city. And then as he looked, he not only saw those canals, but above them was what he himself built, these hanging gardens. In fact, you go back into the history of, of the Babylonian times, they said that those hanging gardens were one of the ancient world's seven wonders. And as he looked at these busy canals below, the glistening tiles, the hanging gardens, the kingdom that he built... It said that he could not contain himself as he boasted this. Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as my royal residence by my power, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? 
Can you just imagine that? And we know what happened. Swift came the divine judgment as Nebuchadnezzar fell to all fours, thinking himself as an ox. He began to dine on the grass until he came to his senses seven years later. Can you imagine that? Hey, well, where's the king? Well, he's in the back pasture. Well, what's he doing? He's on the ground. I mean, can you imagine if that happened to Obama? Well, yeah, I mean, don't go there. I mean, but if he's in the back and he's just grazing on all four and his fingernails became like eagle's claws and his hair, I mean, he was just, that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Pride. And pride is the overconfidence in life that causes the person to lose any sense, if you will, of dependence upon God. In fact, just if you collect these three sins, you could even put them together in the sin of Eve and in the temptation of Jesus. Remember Eve, remember her attraction to eat from the fruit of the garden? It said there, as we've already said, that Eve saw, saw that the tree was good for food, a desire of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes. And that it would make one, what? Wise. There's the pride of life. You think in Jesus in the wilderness, there was first the lust of desire that Satan came after him, where he said, command that these stones become what? Bread. Just appealing to his flesh. Then he appealed to Jesus on the lust of the eyes and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes. Then he said, gave to him the pride of life when Satan offered for Jesus to rule the world if he would fall down and worship. Now, the source of this trio of sins, John just says here, is not from the Father, it's from the world. And loving the world is incompatible to God and His nature that is light. God is holy. God is pure. God is life. God is light. I mean, you could just go back if you just think of our Lord. He was humble. He was meek. He was never prideful. He was born in a stable. His cradle, uh, a manger. He was a carpenter by trade, and yet all at the same time, he's the Lord of glory. Jesus would say to us even this morning, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who have a feeling of unworthiness, that you possess nothing but all at the same time, that you far from clamoring after the world are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And then you think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the greatest servant of all. Then you begin to think about how the Lord lived. He did not look at people's pedigree. He did not look at people's clothing. He did not look at people's ancestry. He did not look at people's schooling choices. He looked at people's hearts. He looked at their soul. See, this stuff that describes the world, the matrix of the world, has nothing to do with the Father. In fact, Lloyd-Jones in his commentary said, Christians have an entirely different conception of all these things from the man of the world. He said, the birth that the Christians know is the rebirth, not the natural birth. The wealth they are interested in is not the wealth of the riches of the glory, he said, but the glory of God. The knowledge they aspire after is not human knowledge, but the knowledge of God. The associations they are proud of are not those you find in noble circles, it is the people of God and in the Christian church, the saints, however humble, however lowly they may chance to be. The honor they crave for is not the honor of the great name amongst men, but the honor of being known by God and anticipating the day when they shall hear the blessed words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. So look what John says, look at the text in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So here's the first incentive. It's the world is incompatible with our love for God. And there's a warning to us. Be warned that you do not become entangled in the world 
at the detriment of your relationship with God. And I have no doubt that as I speak this, that you're struggling with it at some point. I mean, I do. I mean, sometimes you just struggle if you see certain things and the way that people live or you see people and you sometimes think, man, I'm better than them. And when, when God created all and the people we see, we ought to minister to, not think more highly of ourselves. But these things are incompatible with our love for God. But there's a second incentive, and let me touch on this. The world is in opposition with eternity, and you know this. Verse 17, here's the second incentive to, to not love the world. He said in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its what? desires, those lusts, those cravings, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's what John says, the scripture says, the world as we know it, the system, the enterprise is disintegrating is the thought. It's passing away. It is in the process of passing away. This present world in which you lived, you live, is doomed in fact, the darkness in verse 8 earlier is passing away already. And the true light of Christ is already shining. And the world, John says, is transitory. It's passing away. It is headed for destruction. So here would be my appeal. How utterly foolish to pin your hopes, to pin your desires on this world. Listen, what is so appealing today in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, all of that is deteriorating. And one day this system will be wiped clean by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so I'm thinking of this kind of stuff. For Paul said to Timothy, For we have brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing, what? Out of the world. You can't take it with you. It's passing away and you know that. Remember what Job said? Naked I have come from my mother's womb and naked I shall, what? Return. You can't take your house with you. You can't take your car with you. Some would say, I don't want to. Um, but you can't take your clothes with you. You can't take your ranch with you. Swindoll put it this way. He said, I never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. Have you? Can't take it with you. So watch this. This incentive to not love the world is bolstered by, or that command is bolstered by this. It's incompatible with loving God. And secondly, here, as he says, it's in opposition to eternity. Rockefeller, the, the, the famous wealthy man, died and after he died, somebody asked his aide, how much did he leave behind? And the aide responded and said, everything. It's true, isn't it? You can't take it with you. Remember when Solomon was looking at his life and he said, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens, and he's talking plural, I made parks for myself. He said, I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees and I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I brought, he says, I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I collected for myself, Solomon said, silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines, but he also went on to say that all is what? Vanity and striving after the wind to which Jesus would say to you this morning, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his what? What do you get? I mean, what? who cares if you're Carlos Slim? Do you know who Carlos Slim is? Probably never heard of him. He's the wealthiest individual in the world. You say, Carlos Slim, yeah? 
He's, he does something with technology in Mexico. He is worth $73 billion. Not million, billion. How much is a billion? 100, am I right? Million? He's worth 73. Listen, what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and he what? He forfeits his soul. Last time I checked, Bill Gates was worth $56 billion. Listen, you can't take it with you. doesn't matter what you have. So John's just saying to us, listen, here's this huge command, don't love the world. Here's the incentive. It's opposed and incompatible with loving God, and it's in opposition to eternity. I think of that story that Piper shares. He, he said, consider the story from the Reader's Digest, which tells of a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the North, Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she's 51. And they live in a place called Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Piper said, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream. He said, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. He said, come to the end of your life, your one and only God-given life, and let your great work of your life before you give an account of your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Wow. He said, picture them before Christ at the day of judgment. Lord, look, see my shells? He said, this is tragedy. He said, people are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that magic or that tragic dream. He says, over against that, he says, I put my protest. Don't waste your life. Listen, you don't want to love this stuff. It's an opposition to God. And it is a fleeting, passing world. And it's an opposition with eternity. Listen, lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven. Where moth and rust you know, don't destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal for where your treasure is, there will be your what? Heart. Love the Lord, but don't get caught up in this stuff because it's passing away, is it not?